Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today you're listening to Kathleen Powell, Curator of the St. Catharines Museum and Supervisor of Historical Services. Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum. And Sarah Nixon, Public Programmer here at the museum. We're so excited to present our fourth Museum Chat Live episode and our second special feature episode for Books and Brews. The reviews of the podcast have been so supportive, encouraging, and enthusiastic, and we agree we love our podcast music too. Thank you so much for listening. So we're going to get right down into our chat about our March Books and Brews selection, In the Skin of a Lion by Michael Andache. In the Skin of a Lion was the recipient of the Toronto Book Award, and it was a finalist in the 1987 Governor General's Literacy Awards for Fiction. Here's a synopsis. In the Skin of a Lion is a love story and an irresistible mystery set in the turbulent, muscular new world of Toronto in the 1920s and 30s. Michael Ondaatje entwines adventure, romance, and history, real and invented, enmeshing us in the lives of the immigrants who built the city and those who dreamed it into being. The politically powerful, the anarchists, the bridge builders and tunnelers, a vanished millionaire and his mistress, a rescued nun, and a thief who leads a charmed life. This is a haunting tale of passion, privilege, and biting physical labor, of men and women moved by compassion and driven by the power of dreams, sometimes even to murder. Dun dun dun. (laughs) I'm going to keep the dun dun dun. Today we're very excited to feature a special conversation with historian and Brock University professor Carmela Petrias. In addition to sitting down with Kathy to chat about the book and its themes for this episode, Carmela will also be leading discussion of the book for our book club on March 21st. We are so fortunate to be working with the History Department at Brock on a few projects, and we're so pleased Carmela agreed to join us. I only had the privilege to take one of Carmela's classes, just one, when I was at Brock. It was a fantastic course on Canadian immigration, and I very much enjoyed it. And I think that our participants at Books and Brews will really enjoy hearing more of what she has to say. But for now, here is Kathy with her discussion with Professor Carmela Petrius. Michael Ondaatje's novel, In the Skin of a Lion, is set in Toronto in the 1920s and 30s and gives readers a glimpse into the lives of immigrants and laborers who built some of that city's major infrastructure projects. While our discussion on March 21st at our Books and Brews evening will look more closely at the characters in the book and their motivations, today I want to delve into the real story of the Canadian labor movement and the workers in this turbulent time period. Again, as a caveat, similar to the last Books and Brews podcast, I just want to make note that we do recognize that this is a novel of fiction, that the characters in the stories in the novel are not real. Um, We're not taking the content of Vondace's book to be a true representation of labor in Canada in this time period, but at the same time, we're using this book as a jumping off point for discussion to look into the real story of the labor movement and large-scale construction projects in and around the time of the Great Depression and how these can really illuminate a particularly interesting and raw history of our country. 
Today, I have with me Carmela Patrias, who is a professor in the History Department at Brock University. Carmela has written extensively about labour history in Canada and Niagara, including the following publications. Jobs and Justice, Fighting Discrimination in Wartime Canada from 1939 to 1945, Discounted Labor, Women Workers in Canada, 1870 to 1938, which she co-authored with Ruth Frager. Confrontation, Struggle and Transformation, Organized Labor in the St. Catharines Area, co-authored with Larry Savage. And Union Power, Solidarity and Struggle in Niagara, also co-authored with Larry Savage. As well, Carmela has written numerous articles, but also includes an article called Relief Strike, Immigrant Workers and the Great Depression in Crowland, Ontario, 1930 to 1935, which was part of a publication called A Nation of Immigrants, Women, Workers and Communities in Canadian History, 1840s to 1960s, edited by Franca Ioveta and Paula Draper and Robert Ventresca. All of the bibliography from today's discussion about In the Skin of a Lion uh, will also be noted at the bottom of the blog post that goes along with this podcast if you're looking for more information. Uh, Carmela has also written other publications, and I'm sure if you go online, you can find more information about her uh, work as well. So on to our um, interview with Carmela. Welcome, Carmela. Thanks so much for being with me today. Uh, let's jump right in and start talking about labor history in Niagara in the early 20th century. The sense I get is that uh, working conditions were pretty unpleasant in many manufacturing sectors, but at the same time, workers just didn't have enough power to organize to overcome the power of their employers. Um, I was really struck here by the power of the state that the state put behind uh, the employer versus the employee. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yes, I can. I think it's a very important question. and. I think I can name a number of different ways in which the state supported employers against workers. One, and this was kind of fundamental, was that they operated on the assumption that the relationship between an individual employer and an individual worker was one between equals. Mm -hmm. So they had a contract together, and that's why the state did very little to improve working conditions or to uh, protect workers against industrial accidents because they didn't see a role for the state in this relationship between uh, equals. And the assumption was that if a worker didn't like this relationship, they could always quit and find a different job. But we know that in reality, <laughs> the employer usually could find another worker, but it didn't work the other way around. So if a worker lost his job or couldn't stay because conditions were unacceptable, it would be sometimes very difficult for him or her to find a different, uh, a different place to work. And it was also on the basis of this assumption that this was a contract between equals that the law uh, enabled employers not to recognize unions. So workers could form a union, but at this time, employers weren't obligated to um, deal with that union. 
They could just ignore the workers' demands because the worker was seen as an individual there. There was something imbalanced, it was believed, once workers gathered together and collectively tried to put pressure on the employer. And the last thing that I want to say about that is that when um, workers got discontented enough by conditions that they walked out on strike and their protest threatened the factory or the employer, that's another situation in which the state stepped in by sending different levels of police to protect property. So either local police, or if there weren't enough of them, then they would get the Ontario police or the RCMP to come in. Um, or even they, they would bring in the militia to protect property. So again, the idea was that the workers were there as a group and they were threatening the individual employer. So they were going against this contract between equals, and so the state came to betress the position of the employer and also to protect any replacement workers or scabs that were being brought in. Oh, that, that's really interesting. It's such a different contrast to what we would have today. You would rarely hear that the police would be called in to protect an employer versus uh, an employee uh, anymore in a labor action. Right. It seems that conditions improved um, as the years went on in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, St. Catharines and Niagara were booming. Industrial growth was powering the local economy and there was plenty of work to be had. Uh, what were the challenges that workers faced in early industrial growth of Niagara? Uh, were the challenges different for skilled workers versus unskilled workers? And what about women and children? I think that we, uh, we like to imagine that uh, this idea of women and children uh, toiling in dark, bleak factories uh, is a British industrial um, kind of history, but uh, it happened here in, in Canada as well, and I think that's an interesting thing to, uh, to look at. What was the, uh, the role of um, women and children in the workforce, um, and uh, what challenges did they face as a part of that workforce? There was a, a boom uh, which had a lot to do in Niagara with the availability of cheap hydroelectric power. Also, the location was important. We we're so close to the border. Right. There were good railway links to larger cities and to the United States, and there were the canals. And the building of hydro-generating stations and hydroelectric canals and um, of the Fourth Welland Canal uh, all required large numbers of workers and provided jobs for many people. And what's important is that this coincided with mass immigration to Canada, which happened in the early 20th century when very many of the immigrants came from Great Britain, but also a very large number came from Eastern Europe and from Southern Europe. And these were the groups of workers who came to 
build the canals, to build the factories, and then to provide labor within those factories. And there was a real split between skilled and unskilled workers. So most of the skilled workers were either locally born uh, men or uh, <laughs> immigrants from Britain because Britain industrialized earlier than the European continent. And so they had more experience and they spoke English and they had training in industrial work. So we're talking about skilled workers being carpenters, um, machinists, uh, molders, right. okay. uh, people who apprenticed in order to learn a very specialized skill. Right. And the fact that they were skilled meant that they had more control over their jobs because it was harder to replace them. After right. all, they had to apprentice for years to <laughs> learn to do it. Yeah. And they made sure that they retained control over those jobs. So they decided how many apprentices they wanted. They sometimes set the price for the products as well. Whereas unskilled workers, and most of them in this period became, uh, most of those positions were filled by immigrants who came from Southern and Eastern Europe. Many of them had been rural workers, peasants, and so they didn't have experience with this kind of work. And they, this was their first time working in industry. But even if they had more experience, there was a lot of racism right. at the time. And people, these kinds of immigrants were foreigners. British immigrants were not foreigners because they were from the empire. Right. <laughs> but the others were foreigners. and. The skilled workers didn't want them to train to get the skilled jobs. So they were both by lack of experience, by lack of language knowledge, but also by discrimination forced into what were the really hard jobs. Because the state did little to protect workers, both skilled and unskilled workers were often doing dangerous jobs. There wasn't a lot of attention paid to what we would describe as health and safety today. Sure. But the unskilled workers were more vulnerable. Their jobs were less secure. Uh, they were subject to more layoffs. Um, and many of the surrounding communities perceived them as suitable only for the most menial kinds of jobs. So there were assumptions made about them yeah. being inferior, even though what people saw was poverty. They saw them living in poor conditions, getting very low wages, uh, doing dirty jobs. So they were not. There were not necessarily good facilities to clean up after work. So they would be working home in their clothes, and so they were, there were assumptions about them being unclean and so on. I always get the feeling that the language barrier made people think that they were not very smart because they didn't speak the language. They were treated like they were not intelligent at all. Uh, Absolutely. Which is unfortunate. I mean, I think to this day, when maybe not all of us, but often when people run into others that don't speak the language, they raise their voices as if those people were hard of hearing. <laughs> Haven't true. you noticed That's that? True. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, let's talk about women and children. Right. So what kind of work were women and children doing? So by the early 20th century, in principle, only children over the age of 14 were supposed to be working for pay because <laughs> by then 
most pro most provinces had compulsory education and children were supposed to be in school until age 14. Okay. But it often happened that children from poor families where the families needed additional income would lie about their age. Sure. And sometimes it happened that employers knew that they were younger, but they took them on anyway because they didn't have to pay them as much. And when the factory inspectors came around, there were a few of those, but when they came around, they just hid the children. <laughs> so, that was their day in school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and women and children generally did what were seen as unskilled jobs. They were hired precisely because employers saw them as cheap and also because they were believed to be docile. They weren't going to make as right. much trouble as big, strong adult men who didn't like to be pushed around. I mean, I'm sure that the women and children didn't like it either, but the assumption was that they weren't going to do anything about it. No, that's true. I w we were just recently reading uh, a document by Lillian Phelps, who was a local suffragette, and she spoke about women as wage earners and spoke about the fact that women workers had to pay for all their own supplies. So they'd be at home sewing um, garments, piecework, and on top of the pittance that they were being paid for each piece, they had to buy their own thread, buy their own needles, buy their own soap, and all of these things on top of that. So they were already getting paid a pittance and being taken advantage of because they had to work practically all day and all night to get the work done. Um, but on top of that, they were having to fund their work themselves, which is really a little bit of an eye-opener for women in the workforce nowadays, I think. Well, I think the assumption was that all of them were secondary earners, right. that all of them had some man, either their father or their husband, who was looking after them. But we all know that that isn't true. There were widows. There were often men were ill, and besides, a lot of men, especially the unskilled workers, simply didn't earn enough to right. support an entire family. So often, though, if uh, a family, a working-class family, had children over 14 years old, then if there were other young children, the mothers would stay at home and do maybe do some right. at-home work, but for pay. Yep and some of the children would go out to work for wages. Wow, what a difference from today. No kidding. <laughs> I mean, even 14 is not exactly an adult. <laughs> no, and it's usually, most places don't want to hire anyone until they're 16 at least, and even then it's, you know, after school a few hours a week. Yeah, that must have been difficult as a family. Um, but that was in the early part of the 20th century. What about uh, working conditions for workers during the Depression, um, during the Great, Great Depression of the 1930s? I get the impression that there was still work to be had just because there were so many large projects happening in Niagara, but that the conditions were pretty grim overall. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And what's so heartbreaking when you read about the Depression and there are some really interesting sources. So for example, workers who were at their wits end not knowing what to do would write letters to the prime minister oh to ask for help. And some of these letters have been collected and published. And so that's how we know. Um, and some of the things that they complained about, there is a phrase that keeps recurring in these letters and it's, we are unemployed through no fault of our own. Right. 
because it didn't matter how hard they looked for work, there just wasn't work. But what's so heartbreaking is that despite the fact that this was common knowledge, there were still people who blamed them for being out of work, and that's why there wasn't really a, a good social safety network at that time, but there was municipal relief. But it was very hard to get, and people were often made to feel as if they were begging. And they were so, the unemployed were so mistrusted that instead of getting cash, they were expected to work for relief, but instead of being paid cash, they were given vouchers. And sometimes the vouchers entitled them only for certain kinds of groceries, so they couldn't even choose what kind of food to buy. Or they would have to go to some kind of a depot where they would get used clothing, and sometimes they were made fun of. And so it was a very humiliating... Yeah. I um, can't even imagine what that would be like as an adult to... to be a, a prime wage earner in a, a household with a family and be taken down so far that you have no control over anything because someone's telling you where you have to buy your clothes and where you can buy your groceries and what kind of groceries you can buy uh, just because there's no work anywhere. And they can come into your home and investigate. So for example, to have a radio, you had to pay some kind of a license fee. And so if they went into your house, the relief officer, and found that you had a radio or if you had a car, or in one case that I read about, if you, a man had two suits hanging in his closet and the relief officer decided that that family was not in need of relief because they still had those things. That, that is crazy. And that, that still happens today, I think, with a lot of, um, of people who are on social assistance. I think they still feel the same way, but it sounds like it was so much worse uh, during the Depression. Um, and just a, the whole no fault of your own um, that you brought up is such a great point because they couldn't control that. No. Well, at some points one-third of Canadians were out of work, so where were you going to get a job? I know. I was reading a story of Michael Anishuk, who was one of the men who died building the Welland Ship Canal, and uh, that particular about the Depression and the no fault of your own came to mind to me about his story because he was out of work for a year, and he his buddy was working on the Welland Ship Canal right at the end of the project when they were doing the... Um, uh, the landscaping along the canal and his uh, buddy was sick and he went into work for him one day hoping it would lead to a job on the canal for him on his first day of work he was helping with the um, cutting down trees along the uh, the canal bank and a, a tree fell and hit him and he fell into the canal and drowned on his first day of work but he had been unemployed for a year and it was so desperate that he was willing to take practically anything to uh, to get back to work but uh, such a sad story but you would never imagine this the unemployed for a year just struck me as yeah what a grim uh, time the depression was for people in niagara and then you were asking about people who were working so yeah it was the very end of the welland canal project but some kinds of industry were not as severely affected as others so for example in Welland, which had a variety of industries, the 
heavy industry, metallurgical industry of various kinds was severely affected, but textiles was not. So the Empire Cotton Mill, which employed several hundred workers, um, continued to operate, but they kept cutting the workers' wages. And the big problem for workers was that there was very little that they could do because if they protested, the foreman would just say, you don't like it? Go. I've got 300 men lining up at the gates, and they'd be happy to take your job. So despite that, there was a very bitter strike there at the Empire Cotton Mill and in other places. But obviously, during the Depression, if you drew a graph, you'd see that the number of strikes right. was down from right after the First World War, for example. I was really struck um, by your... Um your article about the unemployed workers in Crowland Township striking in 1935 uh, to bring attention to the uh, inadequacy and unfairness of the relief payment system that they had in that community. Um, for me, it's, it's kind of amazing to think that workers who were unemployed were willing to risk the little that they were getting to improve their situation. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, that particular, I guess, I don't know if I would call it a labor action. I suppose it's a labor it action was. And, uh, and its outcome. Yeah, that was a very interesting case, and it wasn't unique. There were relief strikes elsewhere in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada. What distinguished the Crowland strike was that it lasted a really long time. They were out for several weeks, and Premier Hepburn wanted to make a uh, an example of them because he was worried that such actions would, such militancy would spread to other communities. And so he told them that unless they went back to work, this was a fight to the bitter end. <laughs> and they didn't go back to work, uh, even though some of them were receiving relief and that was suspended. So if they were out on strike, if they weren't doing any work, they weren't going to get any relief. Another thing that was really amazing about that strike was that it involved about at least 12 different ethnic groups because the Niagara Peninsula had a very diverse population. And sometimes people assume that because there were people from so many different parts of the world, the labor force was really divided. But from what I studied in Crowland specifically, that wasn't the case at all. Because it was such a small community, everybody's next door neighbor came from a different place, but they all worked in the same kinds of jobs. They all faced the same kinds of discrimination. And so I think that they were pushed to the limit yeah. and humiliated. And so they decided that enough was enough. And they did have a lot of support from the community. So even some of the merchants locally would give them food for free. And uh, it is true that there were some experienced communist organizers who were involved in this. But really, that wasn't the only thing that led to the strike was the workers themselves who were striking. But the organizers sort of helped them to hold out. And also they... Uh, traveled around the province and publicized this so people who were probably also not well off would send them uh, food 
farmers from certain neighboring areas would send them provisions as well. So that, I think, helped them to Made last. Feel like a community. Yeah, and also, yeah. you know, in practical terms, yeah. it helped them to last through the strike sure. when they had yeah. no income. Yeah, that must have been, uh, um, it must have been kind of nice to, to read that they all came together over this whole thing rather than being divided because you would, you always want to think that groups that have the same um, issues will come together to try to overcome them, but it doesn't always seem to happen that way in history. Sometimes they start to kind of take out each other to yeah. be able to, uh, to get their own ends, and this is nice to hear. <laughs> well, and it's something that probably occurred more than we know, but very often historians either study workers without paying attention to their background, that doesn't happen very much anymore, but used to be that way, or they study workers by and communities by their ethnicity. So they'll study the Irish or right. they'll study the Italians. So what I did there was kind of new at the time because I thought, well, it makes sense to look at all of them because there was more that connected them than there was to divide right. them. And also there were two clergymen who were in that community who were very left-wing and very sympathetic. And I think that helped because all of that gave them more legitimacy somehow. They had support that said to them, you're right, you have a right to stand up for yourselves. And that helped, I think. Let's go back just for a second and talk about the connection between uh, the rise of communism and the labor movement in Niagara. Um, I don't know a lot about uh, that particular issue with the labor movement in Niagara, but uh, do you think there was a fear that um, this idea of rise of communism across the world, that there was a fear of a revolution that was going to affect the Niagara region that made employers paranoid and uh, fearful of labor unrest? I think so. I think that probably not so many believed that it would be an actual revolution, but the Communist Party was always pretty marginal in Canada. But the people who were active in the party were really committed to um, doing something for working people. And so even though their numbers weren't very large, they were very prominent in some militant unions. And this is why employers were so anti-communist, because they were afraid that they blamed the communists for the protests, which, of course, isn't historically accurate. The protests were there because the workers were not treated fairly. <laughs> but it was a lot easier to say that it's sure. these communists being directed on strings from Moscow that were responsible <laughs> rather than to admit that maybe you had to do something for people who were underpaid and exploited. So finally, I wanted to talk a, a bit about just the labor movement in general in Canada. Personally, I, I sometimes get the impression that the labor, labor movement would make some forward strides and uh, from a labor action, and then within a year or two, the strides would be clawed back and they would end up right back where they started. And uh, how successful was the labor movement really in the, uh, the first part of the 20th century? And uh, what was the catalyst that allowed the labor movement to really make big gains forward to where we are today? I think that your sense of it is correct, that 
it isn't a matter of progress. You know, they're yeah. unorganized workers in the 19th century, and then they organize gradually until they make a better world. I wish history worked that way, but it doesn't. What happens is that when there, there is more there are more jobs than there are workers, then workers are in a strong bargaining position, and that's when the number of unionized workers tends to go up. Right. And then when, like the Great Depression, or in the 1920s, when all the soldiers returned and there wasn't enough job to go around, then uh, the labor movement recedes. It's not as strong, and even those who are still unionized are less likely to take action. But the big difference happens uh, during the Second World War uh, when there is a tremendous shortage of labor right. because a lot of men are fighting overseas and the Canadian economy expands hugely because until the United States enters the war, uh, the Allies depend very heavily on Canada for all sorts of goods. And of course, then workers can demand better wages and conditions. Yeah. But what happens during the war that's so important is that the government recognizes the right of workers to collective bargaining in order to ensure that the war production moves smoothly. It's essential to do this. So that was the key, the key thing. change. Yeah. And then right after the war, workers are very afraid that this will go this will disappear again right. and so there are a series of strikes the most famous of them is the Ford strike at Windsor where the workers drive their Ford cars and park them all around the factory <laughs> <laughs> to prevent replacement workers right. from going in and finally there is legislation in most provinces well in all of them eventually to uh, guarantee the rights of workers to collective bargaining but I think I would disagree with you slightly uh, in that that's kind of a high point and uh, the number of organized workers in the private sector remains high for a long time, but then when a lot of production is taken, exported overseas, um, and a lot of plants in the Niagara region close down, labor unions disappear. There were some that were so strong in this region and now they either don't exist anymore or they have amalgamated. So Unifor yeah. today brings together workers from different industries because one alone, the CAW, wasn't really powerful enough. So really, Canada is more unionized than the United States, but it's partly because public sector workers are so unionized. Right. But in the private sector, there are many who are not, and most of them are in those parts of the economy where wages are low in the service industries. So tourism, for instance, although some of the big hotels in Niagara Falls are unionized, but um, that's thanks to a very strong effort at organizing. So it's always harder to organize workers who are not there as permanently. Many of them are recent immigrants and they don't feel so secure, for example. Yeah. 
So it almost goes back to those same issues that we talked about earlier on about I think uh, so. your fear of losing your job because anyone, they could just find anybody else to replace you. There's probably 10 people waiting outside the door to get that job because there's just not enough work for everybody. I think so. And I think that those ideas uh, around the time of the Second World War, the other thing besides the growing number of workers in unions was that the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, which was the forerunner of the NDP, was very strong. And the mainstream parties, the liberals and the conservatives, were afraid that they would win elections right. after the war. And so they preempted them and brought in some of the social welfare legislation that the CCF wanted. But I think there's been a real shift away from that. So nowadays, well, especially during certain periods in Ontario <laughs> history, which will go unnamed here, there was a real withdrawal of that social safety network. And I think that also makes, of course, poor people much more vulnerable. Yeah, so it's still an ebb and flow. It We're is. We're still working up the hill and not getting there all the way every time. It is, I, I fear. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carmela. I appreciate uh, you talking with me today. Um, for those who are listening, again, I've been talking to uh, Carmela Patrias, who is professor in the history department at Brock University. Uh, and uh, I thank her very much for joining me to chat about Canadian labor history. We look forward to chatting further about the labor movement in the context of Michael Andache's book, In the Skin of a Lion, on March 21st as part two of our spring 2017 Books and Brews series. So joining me now is... And Meredith is our former Visitor Services Coordinator, and I've been trying to get Meredith on the blog for a little bit, so finally getting her on the blog. Meredith is also like a founding member of Books and Brews. Um, so uh, Meredith, what is your favorite part of Books and Brews? I think what I like most about Books and Brews is it's a different way to experience the museum. Um, we all come to the museum to check out a new exhibit or come to a special event, but this is a different way to interact with history and with other people in the community. I think that's one of my favorite things about it. Awesome. And what is your favorite part of the book? Um, I really loved... Um, because I, this was technically your selection. This is my selection, <laughs> so I feel very responsible. Um, <laughs> despite my initial thoughts, what I actually loved was the time travel element of the book. Um, I think it was a really rich way to connect um, the story of slavery to the current struggles of the African-American population. And I think it tied in so well with, um, with current events and to just see that, that sort of that continuity of struggle, it really made, sort of brought it all together for enhancing everybody's understanding, I think, of that, that story. Awesome. And it met your expectations? Yeah, I, I really liked it. Good. Um, as a historian, I was nervous about it being a train. <laughs> <laughs> Choo-choo! So, you know, I, because I had to tell people they can't actually get on the Underground Railroad. <laughs> So I, I was nervous, but despite that sort of initial misgiving, I really enjoyed the book. Awesome. Thank you very much, Meredith. And we'll be sure to have you on the podcast again very, very soon. <laughs> Thanks, Meredith. Thanks, Adrian. So, what's your name? 
My name is Jack Crockett. Awesome. And you are a repeat Books and Brews person? I am a repeat Books and Brews person. Fantastic. What is your favorite part of Books and Brews? Uh, my favorite part of Books and Brews, it connects the uh, museum with the community. Uh, and I think that's very important. Uh, you know, because with the last, the last uh, Books and Brews season, I guess, uh, you know, it, we, we really talked about things that connected with, with the community. And even with, with this uh, current season of Books and Brews, uh, it, this current book also plays in with the history of yeah. St. Catharines as a community. So I think that's, that's, my, that's my favorite part. Awesome. Uh, what was your favorite part of the book? My favorite part of the book, well, I have to tell you, was right at the very end. When it became clear that the Underground Railroad wasn't really underground, right? I think the, the author, in a roundabout way, um, made it clear that I, I think that the Underground Railroad itself, without actually saying so, was really a metaphor, like a physical railroad, as opposed to it um, you know, being made of uh, like tunnels and what have you. But I think he made it clear that it was a um, kind of a, a metaphor for something that the uh, slaves and the black people had made uh, for themselves right. rather than the America for the white folks. Right. Right? Absolutely. Great. That's it. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I did. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, enjoy the discussion. I'll let you go. I know it's time okay. for discussion. So have fun. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Catherine Lowe's. Thank you so much for joining me, Catherine Lowe's <laughs> of Monte Cafe. That's the really important part. We really appreciate having the partnership with Monte. You guys are so friendly and nice to us. And, you know, it's really great to have you. So thank you very much. Oh my gosh, it's so exciting for us. We love the, we love the museum. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> uh, for our podcast listeners, Catherine presented a fantastic tea tasting seminar and it was awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about the three teas that you brought? Yeah. Um, so the three teas that I brought. So I brought a Japanese sencha tea, green tea, wow. um, that's really light and fragrant. Um, I brought um, a tea called Heavenly Cream, which is like an Earl Grey tea with bergamot and vanilla. Very nice tea. And the last tea, we did a, a cold brew as well, so there's a cleanse of palate in between the green tea and the um, heavenly cream. And that tea was called crimson berry, which was really nice. So we asked people if they could identify the three berries, the flower, and the grass that was in the tea, and they, I think they had a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it yeah it's sort of like wine tasting for people who aren't familiar with tea tasting or coffee tasting. It's pretty much the same idea. You're looking for flavors and stuff like that. Absolutely, right. yeah. Very Absolutely. cool. What was your favorite part of tonight? Well, I think it's always great to come and connect with the community, right? So to be able to come and to, I'm certainly by no stretch of the imagination a tea expert. I did a lot of listening and reading before I came just to see if I could find some fun facts. So I think it's always great when you can engage with the community, bring some interesting information and share. I mean, there are people in, in the audience participating too that had lots of great experiences with tea, right? That shared sort of as we went around. So I think for me that that's the best part is the connection. That you that's really people. cool. Mm -hmm. Do you have a recommendation for a tea podcast? Oh, it's called World Tea Podcast. World Tea Podcast. Yes. And they can find it on iTunes? They, they can find it on iTunes, absolutely. And um, we're also going to include it in our newsletter. So we'll do a little blurb of these 
um, Books and Brews cool. in our newsletter, and we'll awesome. include the, the podcast there too. Awesome. Yeah. yeah so really you can good. you can find Mate Cafe and Lounge on Facebook at facebook.com slash Mate. You have a website as well, Mate.ca. That's correct. That's M A H T A Y dot C A. Right. And we're on Twitter, really active on Twitter and Instagram. And Instagram too. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And you are located at 241 St. Paul Street in St. Catharines. Absolutely. And those teas are available at the store. Sloan teas are the teas that we carry, and we carry all these fantastic loose leaf teas that we're really happy to share with people. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you for very much for being here, too. Oh my gosh. Thanks, Adrian, we'll for asking. Yeah. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Be sure to follow the St. Catharines Museum on our various social media platforms. We're on Facebook at Dash St. Catharines Museum. We're on Twitter and Instagram at STC Museum. And on our WordPress blog at stcatharinesmuseumblog.com. Special thanks to the Department of History at Brock University and to our Books and Brews presenting partner, Mate Cafe and Lounge. This episode of Museum Chat Live was produced by Adrian Petrie, Sarah Nixon, and Kathleen Powell. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and the City of St. Catharines.